1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, should the veil be a matter of courts or conscience? The campaign, My Stealthy Freedom, has attracted one million followers on Facebook. Every Wednesday, its page fills with photos and videos of women in Iran going without their veils in public. Iran is the only country in the world where all women are required by law to cover their hair in public breaking that law can have serious consequences. At least 35 women have been arrested for unveiling this year, and many of the videos show protesters being violently attacked. But still, the protests continue. My guest today is is the woman who created My Stealthy Freedom as a call to action for women in Iran. Masih Alinejad, an Iranian journalist and activist now living in exile in Brooklyn. These protests go to the heart of the questions of free speech and individual rights that we've been exploring in our open future season and they're forcing debate at the highest levels of the Islamic Republic. While the judiciary calls for harsher punishments for protesters, President Hassan Rouhani not long ago released a survey revealing half of Iranians think the veil should be a matter of choice. So could reform be on the way? Masih Alinejad, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. You've written a new book called The Wind in My Hair about your activism, but how did the campaign start? What moved you to really take this on? First of all, I have to say that for four decades, 40 years in Iran,
0: women have been unhappy about compulsory hijab and pushing back the boundaries. But my campaign actually started four years ago when I published a photo of myself, which was me running in a beautiful street in London. I wrote this uh, caption that any time when I run in a free country and I feel the wind in my hair, it just reminds me of the time when my hair was like a hostage in the hands of Iranian Then I received a lot of comments from Iranian women envying at my freedom from compulsory hijab. You know, so soon after I found another picture of myself, which was taken inside Iran, driving down toward my hometown, being unveiled. And I wrote another caption saying that, you know, I'm a woman. I know how to bypass the authority and create the moment of freedom, which I called my stealthy freedom. And I asked other women whether they want to share their stealthy freedom. I was bombarded by pictures from women. I thought these women want to express themselves. So they need a platform. That is how my stealthy freedom was born first. And then after three years, when I found that media around the world are talking about us, I thought now we have to shift the online movement offline in the street. So I launched White Wednesday's campaign.
1: So the White Wednesday movement was a public, effectively a civil disobedience development from my stealthy freedom. Did you have any worries about taking it to the streets? That's a good question. But look, before my campaign was
0: launched, you know, there were 3.6 million women were warned or arrested or sent to the court. You know why? Just because of not wearing their hair properly. It is called in Iran, inappropriate hijab. So you see, this is not actually me putting women in mm-hmm. danger. Being a woman in Iran means that every day you have to face morality police. And these are actually the reason that women joined my campaign, because they fed up. You know, they're tired of morality police and being told what to wear, what kind of lifestyle to follow.
1: I just want to delve into how this then relates to broader ideas of feminism and the rights of women. Malala always wears a hijab. There is an Australian hijabi activist, uh, Yasmin Abdel-Majid, who says Islam is the most feminist religion. So when is the veil feminist and when is it oppressive?
0: Um, let me make it clear because I often get this question whether we are against Islam or um, you know, we are against those women who wear hijab. My mom wears hijab, my sister wears hijab. My dream is to walk with them shoulder to shoulder in Iran, in France, in America. And both of us have the same freedom. You know, my mom wearing her hijab everywhere without being humiliated and me being unveiled without getting arrested. Of course, we are not against our mothers and sisters. But when it comes about the political Islam, then that's problematic.
1: I wonder where this all leaves your relations with your close family? Because I think you grew up in a, in a an observant family. You said that your mother wears hijab, that you don't. But what about your father? And, and what about oh the other God. influences in your life? <laughs> How did they respond to this fantastically stroppy and independent <laughs> daughter that they raised.
0: Oh my, my, my brother he was a main supportive but my father was really um restrict and he was not he was not supportive. So D- did you
1: ever sort of resolve that conflict with your oh father? My God. I
0: not at all. And I strongly believe that um, my father still loves me and I love him but I had a revolution against my father's revolution because he was brainwashed by the, the educational system in Islamic Republic of Iran. He, he was the one who wanted to take me to heaven by force, and I didn't want to do that. You know, when I started to take off my black chodor, my hijab, he spat on me when he saw me in the street. He broke my heart, but I always blamed the Islamic Republic of Iran and, and, and the whole educational system, which separate me from my father. And um, still, I love him, but I don't want to follow the lifestyle that he think is the only you know, good lifestyle. He wanted me to be a proper Muslim girl, but I was a troublemaker.
1: You certainly wear that. And why do you think the Iranian government feels the need to use the law to enforce this issue? Why would moral and religious teaching not suffice?
0: That's a a good point because for Islamic Republic of Iran, um, hijab is the main pillar of the, the, the regime. Actually, we have three pillars, hijab, death to America, death to Israel. So for them, this is actually important to show the rest of the world that this is Islamic country. And I, this is the way that they try to control women and control the whole society through women. That is why they never actually allow women to express themselves and talk about it in the media inside Iran, which is a red line, which is a taboo in Iran. But after you know the, the campaign and Girls of Revolution Street who put the headscarf on his stick, the women inside Iran, they broke the censorship.
1: And why do you think President Rouhani did release that survey? I think it was back in, in February which seemed to be a way at least of of showing that he wanted to be in the conversation about this or was it simply placating opinion in order to <laughs> avoid any real reform? I mean, what's your judgment a few months on?
0: Honestly... it was Iran protest and the time when Rouhani came out with that, you know, statement. And I I strongly believe that he was trying to calm the angry people down. But I have to say that President Rouhani actually is a main architect of compulsory hijab. As he said in his memoir, he was the one, you know, introduced compulsory hijab to, to women in the army. And he said that proudly. So, we don't need to hear from President of Iran that this is a survey. People of Iran are unhappy about compulsory job. No, he's in power. This is his responsibility to do something. We need an action. You know, we don't need... But any- it, does, it
1: sounds to me like you're kind of reading him the rule book or the one that you would like. Is there any sign, really, that he's listening to you? Or indeed, I know it's a very complicated power structure at the top of Iranian society and politics. Are you getting anywhere? Let me tell you something. Nowadays, through social
0: media, actually, women and the new generation are not waiting for President Rouhani or, you know, all the policymakers to remove compulsory hijab laws. When you go to Iran, you will see how they are practicing their civil disobedience. They are removing the compulsory hijab themselves. Women are not begging their rights for, for the government. They are actually creating the, the moment of freedom and they're gaining their rights back. This is actually um, you know dilemma in, in Iran right now, because the government of Iran cannot control the society. When they see women of Iran showing and representing themselves through social media, they want to ban and filter all the social media
1: inside Iran. And if people were to say to you, there are so many pressing human rights issues in Iran, you could be putting your focus on crackdown on the press, on detentions without trial, on torture. I know you speak out on many of those things, but why the focus on compulsory hijab? Because this is the most visible symbol of oppression. Because
0: the Islamic Republic of Iran, after the revolution, took our bodies like a hostage. And they wrote their own ideology on our bodies. And if we bring this wall down, then the rest will get easier. If you cannot control your head, then how are you going to control what's going on inside your head? So that is why I think hijab is not a small issue. We're talking about the violence against women, which is started from a small piece of cloth. We are fighting for our dignity.
1: What message do you think it sends then when influential Western female politicians like uh, Federica uh, Mogherini, the EU's high representative for foreign affairs and security, or Anna Linda, the Swedish trade minister, wear the veil when they visit Iran? Do you think it's a, it's a wrong message? Would you counsel them against you know, I'm so happy that you
0: mentioned their name because they condemn Burkini ban. They condemn travel ban. They support Muslim minority. But when it comes about compulsory hijab, we see a lot of uh, feminist female politicians go to Iran. They obey compulsory hijab without even challenging it. When we invite you to hear the voice of Iranian women, we don't want you to liberate us. We want you to learn from Iranian women how it means to resist a discriminatory law. Because when you legitimize a discriminatory law by obeying compulsory hijab, you're actually empowering the government of Iran to put more pressure on us. So this is really important for us.
1: Let's turn the lens the other way and the other big development uh, recently regarding the West in Iran. And that is Donald Trump's change of direction. Do you think that, uh, you know, he has a point in putting pressure on the Iran deal or are you concerned? Um, right now in Iran,
0: the main issue is the survival of Islamic Republic of Iran. People are actually talking whether we want Islamic Republic or not. I myself was supporting the deal because I saw that people were suffering from sanction and that were just, you know, affecting the people, not the politicians. And um, that is why I was talking against the sanction. But what happened after the deal? The benefit didn't go to the people of Iran. That is why people in Iran, they they took the street and they were really angry about the, the whole benefit of the deal went to the Revolutionary Guard, went to Syria, went to, you know, Gaza, to Lebanon, went to the Islamic
1: Republic. It does sound like you have some sympathy then with people who said look, this deal was very flawed rather than being in the group of people who are just profoundly worried about tearing up that kind of nuclear constraint deal at this point. Because I'm living among the people and I cannot lie to myself.
0: When I was supporting the deal, I had a hope. But when I see that the benefit didn't go to people, what can I say? Before the deal, I remember Catherine Ashton from the European Parliament, when she went in Iran, she met all the human rights activists and that was the condition to go to Iran. But after the deal, Federico Magrini went to Iran, she totally ignored the human rights issue. So what I want to say is, do not bury
1: human rights under nuclear deal. I think that's a very good point, actually. That tension between human rights and uh, and deal making, particularly on, on nuclear. Iran has a history of revolution, and I wondered how hopeful you are that internal change will come and how quickly. I believe in in women's power.
0: I believe in civil disobedience, and I strongly believe that change comes within the society and especially through the women in Iran. But I have to make it clear, this is important right now for women of Iran and people of Iran to be recognized by international community as well, because Islamic Republic of Iran using all the media outside, even the social media, which they filtered it, but they use it to mislead the rest of the world about the situation in Iran. So for people in Iran, it's really important to um, be heard among those politicians outside Iran Iran, especially the European Parliament, that they are unhappy. They don't want to be censored the way that they are being censored for four decades in Islamic Republic of Iran.
1: Masih el thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so
0: much for having me.
1: And we'd like to know what you think. Will civil disobedience plus viral videos change the law in Iran? And is it ever right that some citizens of a country should enjoy more legal rights than others? And what should the West do about that? Join the debate, go to economist.com slash openfuture, email us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag openfuture. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist.